colloquial. When I was born, I had a party hat on. I had a party hat on when I came out of my mom. The nurses had confetti through their hands in the air. In intensive care, 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 in intensive care. You're listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. And that was the Bash Brothers from Nanaimo, British Columbia, Canada, with Party Hat. And today on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with Blowfly on the occasion of his birthday. And also, a conversation with, are you there, caller? Yes, I am. Who are you? My name is William Jans. Who are you, William Jans? Could you please explain to the people? Uh, I'm a photographer based in Vancouver. 
I used to shoot a lot of concerts and stuff, and I do corporate stuff now, but I also, every three years, go overseas and do some whacked-out trip, going up like Mount Everest or through Tibet or South America, and then come back and host these live shows about them with uh, photos and crazy storytelling, and uh, and I was lucky enough you finally came to one. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about, William Jans. What do you do when people ask you what you do? What do you say that you do? What do you do, William Jans? Uh, I guess it's two things. I could either say photographer on its own or photographer slash adventurer. <laughs> And you started doing Santa photos at Guilford Mall. That's where it all started. No, that's not how I started, but I, I managed that for a while. Yeah, there was a – it actually eventually grew to being a crew of like 25 people. That was uh, ending up at Oak Ridge. And, uh, what was that? Please get more into detail about that, doing Santa photos at Guilford Mall, William Jans. Okay, well, basically there's this guy in the red suit, and he's got this big beard, and people sit on his knee, and he later will bring them gifts on a certain set date. How many years did you do that? Oh, God, I managed that for, I might have been seven, eight years. I mean, it was, Guilford started there, but then, as I said, ended up at Oak Ridge, and then uh, some nasty American company was brought in to do it. And finally, I saw a show of yours. Which show did I see, William Jans? Although I think I may have seen a show at the Denman Place Mall. What did I see, and what could have I maybe seen? Well, you missed Tales from Tanzania, which is the brand-new show. Uh, that's about uh, going up Kilimanjaro and living with Maasai warriors for a while. And there's also one trekking in Tibet. Top of the World is the one about Nepal and India. Uh, trekking in Tibet's um, Nepal, China, and Laos. But you saw Solo in South America, which is Brazil, uh, Bolivia, uh, Peru, Machu Picchu, and uh, some of Ecuador and Galapagos, too. And, you- and again, it's... It's not just about the places. It's all the crazy things that go wrong on the way, and I think that's why they're popular. And they well, could you explain the setup exactly? How was the setup when I walked into the Rio Theater, William Jans, to see your great performance? Uh, well, I guess setup I'm not really sure how to explain, but uh, it, it's kind of storytelling at its simplest, uh, supported by hopefully what should be considered well, I'm good images, I hope. And uh, and the, and fun video, which kind of ties all in together. Uh, the one goofy thing I decided from way back is going with uh, costumes from the regions. They're all real. I mean, the stuff either people wore or I was given to wear or acquired, and that's kind of you know fun. And so it means with like the Tanzania show, there's a full Maasai wardrobe I get to walk out with, including spear and 18-inch knife, and these shukas or, or loincloths that they wear, and a ridiculous amount of jewelry that the men wear there. So all that kind of stuff kind of makes it for a, a pretty. Um, interesting mix of, I guess, it's sort of like a live movie. Uh, I don't know if it'd be considered performance art or anything, but uh, they're, they're a bit of a head-scratcher kind of thing, and that's what's made it challenging, in a way, across Canada to promote them. But once people see them, I mean, I've been lucky. There's been 13 solo shows in, in B.C., and uh, 800 people a night sometimes. I just did my first 2,000-seat audience in uh, Edmonton for a teacher's conference, and I love it that people don't know where to put this thing because it is a bit of a different kind of beast. People can they... check out some clips from the show, or at least photos on your website, can't they? WRJphoto.com? Indeed. And uh, what I might even suggest, too, if anyone's kind of interested in, in that, there's no date set right now because I just finished doing the, some West Coast. I did uh, nine shows in seven weeks in four cities, and it's, it's hard, but it was fun. But um, if they go to that website, on the right side of any of the, the live show pages, there's the video clips and stuff too, but on the right side they can click on there and uh, just ask for updates, and I will tell them when the show is next coming. Again, because they tend to sell it by word of mouth, that's not a bad thing to be on that little list. 
What's really impressive about your show, William Jans, or speaking to William Jans, is that the delivery is so professional, like so professional. Has anybody wanted to hire you to sell their products? Like, <laughs> I've had people ask if they, you know, some people kind of want to tie into it and stuff. And I'm actually really lucky that I've just had what's been my fourth TV show pitch come come my way. Um, and I mean, one, I actually got a call from A&E in New York once, which was really cool, but that didn't pan out. But this latest one, this fellow came to the Tanzania show and has expressed enough interest that he's talking TV show stuff. So I'm not going to hold my breath because that's the nature of TV, but... Uh, I, it's, it's intriguing, and uh, I'll keep my fingers crossed. That'd be well, great fun. Well, what I was thinking, your delivery is so pro. Like, you're up there talking about the photos, you're playing videos, you're dressing up, etc. Has anybody wanted to hire you to sell their products? Like, screw your photos that you sell oh. chamois or something like that. Like, you're such a good pitchman, William oh, Jans. That's funny. Yeah, I'm losing my shirt to give you a deal. Uh, no, um, I, not, nothing that comes to mind. Uh, uh, I'm just trying to think... I. No, I mean, I was hired, actually, by uh, a pretty high-level uh, justice, or what would the title be? I guess it's one of the high-level uh, legal people in Victoria. It was through somebody else where I built a show for, for her, uh, but it was, she was doing all the talking, and another fellow did the writing, but I did all the imaging and, and kind of quaffing it to make it run really tight, like a little movie. Uh, so that happened, but that wasn't me up there, you know, pitching or anything. I don't know if I could do that. I... Are you still there, William Jans? Oops, are you still there? Yes, I'm still there, William Holy Jans. Holy cow, my phone died. That was amazing. Well, if that's not uncommon that your phone would die, is it? Because a lot of time goes into your presentation. Is it really like 18 hours a day for 18 days leading up to the actual presentation? No, that's just the end of it. It takes a full year for me to build a show, and it's months and months of editing. It's just the very last bit of it, the worst of it, building the deadline means that the three weeks before the show, I'm working every single day, 18 hours a day. Yeah, that is accurate. And that actually, in all sincerity, too, for every single show, including the Tanzania one, there ended up being two days within that three-week period that I did 21- and 22-hour days, which does mean going to bed at, at uh, 5 in the morning, and then something wakes me up at 7 a.m., and I'm, my head's spinning too much knowing what i got to do that I just get back to work. And, and you end up starting to get, like, coffee shakes and stuff, and you just start falling apart, lose weight. But I, that's the way I have to do these, because if I waited till the show was done and then announced a date, I would never finish it, because it's just too hard. But if I set a date, it's like, holy cow, I better go. Where did the TV offers come? You mentioned A&E, and you got a recent one happening. I know you don't want to jinx it, but where have people propositioned you from? Um, the A&E one was, of course, from New York. Then there was two local ones, uh, one of which is actually still a viable idea, but because it's kind of travel-based, the expenses are incredibly high. Like, uh, I think it was 130000 U.S. per episode, 13 episodes or something. So to get financing, they were going international, and apparently, like, Nat Geo said, yeah, we're interested, but, you know, they only wanted to pony up a certain amount of cash. And I think ZDF in Germany, who do a surprising amount of English uh, content and, and usually supply into Australia, they were interested too, but same thing. They, the producers couldn't get enough funds. So that one is still... Uh, it's a great piece. They kind of, they kind of wrote it based on what I do, and I'm, I'm sure grateful for that. And it would have been a hoot, or will be a hoot if it hits sees the light of day. But again, I don't know what to expect on that. The newest one is uh, again a fellow who, who saw exactly what he's doing, going, "Yeah, I can make something out of that." 
So, but yeah, you're right. I don't want to jinx it too much. When people are sitting in their seats looking at your show, William Jans, I'm fascinated by the technical aspects. How do you make it so smooth, the transition from video, then you have pictures, then you have like the lights dimming? Are you operating that all at once, like a total mix master, or is it yeah. fully automated? No, it, I, I appreciate you asking that. I, I'm, I'm glad to answer that one. No, it's totally live. Um, I used to do it completely off the cuff where I had even CDs I was pulling and finding sounds and stuff. Uh, but now with doing it digitally over the last, I guess, 10 plus years, it allows me to, to prep a lot more things in advance. But like, so video, I'll spend months editing to get the pieces just right. But then I've got the ability that I kind of call it up when I want uh, live on stage. Uh, so it just means that the, since the show's live, it could run a little longer, a little shorter, and, and all my bits of stuff might run longer. Uh, like listen to the background music and stuff, and, and I can just cut it faster or, or tighter live is how I need. But physically, when you're doing it live, you're like fading out the lights, you're making sure everything is right, then you're changing into a costume. Yeah. A lot of that is timing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you get used to it. It's kind of funny when premiering a new show, like I said, the Tanzanian one I premiered in Victoria, and uh, it's a little bit more nerve-wracking because it's not just all the information I got to get out there and, and, and stuff. It's those other little, yeah, making sure I have enough time to run back and put on these Maasai earrings that, you know, are big things that hang off your ears and, and getting clothes on. It has happened sometimes where I'm running out there still trying to zip up a pair of pants or something. And if anybody else is interested in doing a presentation, actually, does anybody else do a presentation like you, William Jans? When did you get this idea? Does anyone else <laughs> use this multimedia total thing? Like, um, I think there are some in Canada, not many, and I've been really lucky. People have kind of... Uh, said some pretty nice things about the, the level I'm at doing them, and, and um, I, I, I think with the amount of work I put into it, I don't know anyone's doing them like that. Um, and I, I, again, I guess that's what's made them popular. It's, it, it, it's an odd thing where it does sell out by word of mouth. It's people who've seen them. Like, well, you're a good example. I tried forever to get you to go to one, and I, I figured, you know, you might come and whatever, but as it turns out, I think you said you really liked it. And, uh, oh, I did enjoy it, and I think I, like I think I actually did see it a few years ago at the Denman Place Mall there, but you deny that I actually was there. <laughs> I don't think so. But you are now live. Hang on, you did say, I think you said awesome a couple times, and then the best thing, one of my favorite quotes that was from you, it was, uh, it was like seeing the gruesomes of Club Soda or seeing the clash at Bonds in New York, and I thought, that's a great quote. Well, I wasn't at Bonds in New York, but I did see the Gruesome Club Soda in 1989. And yes, it was very close to that. And we're speaking to William Jans, wrjphoto.com, talking about his audiovisual presentation of his travel adventures, etc. Did you just get back from some shows in the United States of America? Uh, no, I haven't done shows in the States yet. I, I'd like to. I think it'd be a neat bunch of people to talk to, but I think the logistics of getting across the border and with all the stuff I'm bringing, yeah, it's a little bit dicey. Yes, that's what I was going to ask you about. If people want to do their own presentation and you want to offer any tips for doing an audiovisual presentation, you bring everything. Like, you bring your own lights, too, don't you? Oh, I've done it enough years. I try to go quite self-contained. Um, and I do have, like, one spot that, yeah, I have a rheostat that I built that I can work on stage. So I can control the dimming of lights on me because nobody knows the cues better than me. So, yeah, I can do be very self-contained. I've got screens now and my own speakers but just even the kit of, of wardrobe stuffs and the, the little um, lectern that I use and 
all the, all the tech gears and mixer stuff. So yeah, it's, it's a bit cumbersome to move, especially as a one-man show. But um, I, I think I've gotten tight enough at it that uh, I can I can kind of do it in a lot of places with better success than when I first was starting out. And you're relying on someone who says, "Oh yeah, don't worry, we got a good sound system." And then you get there and you find out it's like two little small speakers in the ceiling of a ballroom, and you're like, "No, man, these are big sounds. This is a real show." And like the Tibetan one's got some Tibetan drones that are really deep, and it's nice to have a good, clean sound system for that. So that's why I tried to go self-contained. And also, people at your shows, it's pretty much all word of mouth, isn't it? You've got some press, but it's basically word of mouth. Are venue owners surprised when all these people show up for something maybe they've never heard about? Like, it's total word of mouth, isn't well, it? Well, get this. It's actually even weirder for the Vancouver shows. There's tons of people that come in from Chilliwack, um, the Sunshine Coast. We've had people come from the island. We've had people come up from Seattle for a Thursday night show in Vancouver, that's cool. And and it, as you said, it's the same thing where some people, I had people scalping tickets outside of the South American show when it first premiered. The second night, I did it a month apart, uh, two different dates. And I'm not so much scalping, like, you know, making a profit, but it was totally sold out. And there's people walking around going, anyone got tickets? And somebody was going, I got tickets and working it out. So it's weird that some people have never heard of them and other people are willing to line up 800 deep in the rain for them. So I, I'm very grateful. And Vancouver, by far, has been the most fun audience to play with because there's interactivity with the shows, too, and the, and the Vancouver audiences are really keen to play along. Um, I, I, for the South American show, um, I got to go through these mines in Bolivia that are it's considered the toughest job in the world. 4,800 meters in altitude, and you're going 500,000 meters deep into this dank uh, tunneling area where they're exploding at all times. I mean, there's, it's just mayhem. And um, I brought back this alcohol that these guys drink for fun there that's 96% alcohol. It's called Sabo, and it's actually, funny enough, made by Cannon to Dry. And uh, I pull three people up from the audience who are daft enough to, to try this, and that's part of you know interactivity or teaching people uh, crazy phrases in, in Spanish or, uh, you know, fair di- like, I, I, th- I don't know if you remember, but the one thing in there of, no, I'm sorry, I won't dance with you because you are creepy. <laughs> you make people sign a waiver, too, before they drink the alcohol. Well, it's pretty damn strong. It's kind of for kicks, but I probably should be a little safe that way because, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's 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 brutally strong. I mean, and I tell people when these people walk back from the stage, too, have a whiff of them because from 15 feet you can smell. They've had, like, a less than a tablespoon uh, or teaspoon even sometimes, but they just reek. What was that mine that you went to again, and why were all the miners having a big cheek? What was in the cheek? Um, the mine was uh, Cerro Rico in Potosi in Bolivia, and it was funny that Potosi, um, in, for one period of time, was the biggest city on the planet, and most people haven't even heard of it. When London was a dot and Tokyo hadn't even happened yet, Potosi had millions of people living there, and it was exclusively because of this mine. It was the richest silver content mine anywhere, and what's trippy, too, is over 8 million people died there in mining for silver because of mainly the refining process. They were bringing slaves over from Africa and some from Peru. And um, a really notorious place. Uh, and anyway, so in, in going there and poking around, I, I figured I wanted to go into the mines and look around, too. And maybe it was foolhardy, but I went through twice, actually, to just get more footage and more stories. Why were the cheeks like that? Oh, yeah, forgive me. I was, yeah, I apologize. Uh, the um, coca, they're, they're chewing coca leaves, and uh, that's actually the only thing they will consume during their 10 to 12-hour workday. Coca leaves and water, because they think if they eat any other food, they'll uh, it'll tire them out. So, um, and, and coca leaves are a huge staple in, in Peru and Bolivia, uh, but it takes a lot of refinement and chemicals to turn coca leaves into cocaine. So the kind of whole war on drugs thing is a bit ridiculous, because... 
coca leaves and cocaine are not the same thing. And coca leaves, um, pregnant women swear by the stuff. The locals consume it all the time. And again, these guys are doing a whole huge cheek full of the stuff. And it actually helped me. I climbed a pretty high altitude uh, peak in uh, Bolivia. And I've been, you know, on Everest a few times and done some high altitude stuff before. But you never know when altitude sickness can hit you. And it happened to have got me. And, and coca leaves, chewing a bunch of those is probably what kind of pushed me through and made it work. It's and you're documenting all this, which is amazing, yeah. through photos and video. How do you keep the video so still and so clear and so steady? Oh, that's thoughtful. Um, yeah, it's all held just straight armed and pointing back towards me if I'm in the shot or, or uh, yeah, and I think that's the bulk. It's, it's, I can say shot from the hip, but it's really just straight arm shooting of uh, turning the camera back. And I don't know, I guess it's just experience or something because there's bits of video where I'm on a motorcycle or getting bounced around and video sticking out there, and it seems to work well. Uh, and the nice thing about that, too, is because it's a smaller camera, uh, in, in interacting with people, they'll quickly forget the camera's there, and they're actually just communicating with me, and that makes it a lot more fun instead of some big camera that's blocking my face, and they're aware that they're being photographed or whatever. And, and I should say, everybody that's in the stills and videos, one of the nicest things I've had people say about the shows is that they figured the people in that footage is having just as much fun as I am. And that's really cool. So it's not voyeuristic, it's participatory. They're, we're all having a good time and, and kind of telling these stories and letting them unfold. And you're William Jans, WRJphoto.com, talking about your audio-visual presentation that has run its... multimedia co- extravaganzas. That has run its course <laughs> in Vancouver for the moment, but will be back. Are the people on your tours aware of what's going to happen with their photos? Have they seen your shows at all? Well, considering... Like, I got into western Tibet, the second most inaccessible place on the planet. Um, I actually am corresponding with one person there, but it's pretty tough to assume they'll ever get a chance to see this. But I, I, I always ask to take photos. I learned uh, nine languages so far, and I try to communicate to, to make sure people are okay with me doing what I'm doing. And uh, try to make sure they're... they're they're okay with it, and they're under. I'm never going to make fun of anyone. They're going to look good. If anything, I'll make fun of myself. So I, I has think anybody it's... said no at all, William Jack? Oh yeah, sure. People have said no. And has it caused a problem at all? Well, no. I, like I'm a firm believer. Uh, Hong Kong, for instance, or, or mainland China in general, to photograph an older woman is usually pretty difficult because they uh, they tend to be you know shy of that, whether it's superstitious or they're just not interested. So more of them have said no than yes, and I have very few photographs of them. But I'd rather think I'm not offending a culture or a person uh, and, and comply with that and think, hey, I got this picture to show this woman who is really mad at me. Like, that's just not cool. William, you mentioned climbing a mountain. Is that where it took one second for you to fall asleep? What was that story where, like, you were so tired, you timed how long it would take for you to fall asleep, and you just got to one, and then you fell asleep? Where was that? Uh, that was uh, Hawaiian Potosi, which I know it sounds like the same name as the city I mentioned, but it's the name of a, a high-altitude peak that's right near the equator. Right near the equator. And although it was a 6,000-meter peak because of the equatorial bulge, it's more like 7,000, and we pegged it off faster. It was another guy that was there and then the the two locals who do it all the time. And uh, it just ended up zapping a lot more strength for me than I guess I had. And I, I'm usually pretty fit, so I guess it just was not a good day for me. And by the time we got down, I was just so exhausted. Crampons on and, and the harnesses and everything, and I just, boof, so, leaned over and 
I was asleep. But weren't you timing yourself to see how long it would take for you to fall asleep, and you got to one, and that was it? Like, it was instant? Uh, no, actually, but that sounds like a good story. I, I thought you were going, like, did happen that way. I thought you were doing a countdown, you know, like 10, and then bang, you just went right out there. Oh, you know, honestly, I'm sure that, that had that been the case, it would have, I had actually been counting, it would have been that quick. It was, I've never been that exhausted ever in my life. And the, and the worst part is I woke up later and still completely gooned. And you're still halfway up a mountain. You got to get down. And I, I was so beat, I didn't want to eat, but knew I had to eat, or I might not have the strength to carry all the stuff down. But that was harsh. That was really harsh. How long do you do shows, William Jans? You're mentioning ones from the past or ones from 2004. Is it ever time for a revisit for some of these places? Do you update your statistics? Uh, yeah, I update little notes. Like I mean, the population in in India has grown. So the stat I have about that of uh, of comparing India to, I think it's even. Uh, Oh, yeah, like the population in Delhi, which is the city, is comparable to the population of Canada. And, and I had to update it to say that you know, India's population is now uh, 1 billion, or it's over 1 billion now. Um, so stats will update. And as far as doing the shows, I love doing them. And if people want to see them, I'll keep doing them. Uh, it's just a matter that they're very cumbersome to put on. And, and like, I got to do Ottawa and Toronto later, probably this fall. But it's a long way to go, and airfare, rental cars, and stuff. I got to make sure I get enough bums and seats, as they say. And promoting is is never that much fun. I'm lucky some media things who've seen them or got on board with it are really great and get the word out. But it's still, I mean, you know, promoting is is always tough. Is that place still the world's most dangerous road? Where was that, William Jans? What can tell the people about that? The world's most dangerous road. Is that still the world's most dangerous road? Um, I think so. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't keep up in the stats of that, but for when I was there, you know, I bet you it is. And it, it's in Bolivia. It's um, a, a downhill bike ride you can do if you're willing. And based on statistics of, of how many cars have crashed and gone over into the abyss there, it is, at that time, was the most dangerous road in the world. It was, I think, average of two vehicles per week go over. And uh, it, it's really steep. Um, and, and what's dicey, too, is if you're cycling down this thing, there's a section where it's only one vehicle wide. So if cars need to pass, they've got to come up with a way, or it's actually trucks typically carrying cargo. They've got to find a way to get by each other because nobody's going to agree to back up, you know, equivalent to, you know, 15 miles or something. And uh, if you're on a bike, too, I mean, we're easier to get out of the way, but you'll be glued to a, a cliff face while one of these goes by. And uh, it actually happened uh, about a year before I was there where one young girl was cycling it and unfortunately kind of put herself where she thought she was out of harm's way while two trucks were trying to get by each other. And one backing up to give room to the other one just gently pushed her off the cliff to her death and, uh, you know, didn't see her. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it is really freaking dangerous. The photos that you take, you also make prints of. Do you sell many of these prints afterwards, William Jans? Yeah, yeah. Um, I made some, a series of posters, one for... Uh, well, the series of six, one's from the Galapagos that has a blue-footed booby, and there's the Tibetan one, uh, Nepal. Uh, the Laos one is my most famous photograph. That can be seen on the web. That's the one of that girl splashing water at a speeding motorcycle. What about the pig in the bike? What can you tell the people about the pig in the bike? I haven't done a poster of that, but maybe I should. And then that has been a popular little picture. It's uh, a picture from Vietnam of, it looks more like a scooter than a uh, motorcycle, but it's a small little mini bike kind of thing. And this guy has a pig strapped perpendicular across the back of it that must weigh one and a half times more than the motorbike and it's in a cage it's live or more like a you know chicken wire cage and it's it's huge and i just managed to meet this guy as he was i think checking the inflation of his tires or something and uh and he's all smiles and the pig's just sitting there you know in this in this rack you know 
One of my favorite stories regarding photography is one that you told me, William, about a photo lab and one of your photos and the guy in the photo lab recognizing a photo that you took overseas? Uh, sort of, yeah. This is, I'm very lucky. I've got more absurd travel tales than most and stuff that you would swear has to be a lie because it's so outrageous, but I can prove it with images. And on that one trip alone, that's actually from the Top of the World show. Um, I've got, I bumped into my next door neighbors in India, which was like physically bumped into them. Excuse me. Hey, um, a few things happen like that. But yeah, this one story that you're alluding to is, I think, I've yet to heard, hear anybody top this for a weird coincidence. And I even had one guy tell the story back to me, not knowing I was the guy. And I could say that was me. And he's going, no way. I said, yeah, yeah it really was. So in, in a nutshell, what it was, I was in, um, uh, where was this now? Uh, in Thailand, and it was this uh, Thai festival of, of New Year's where the people splash water on each other. It's called Songkran. And uh, th- this guy went and splashed water on me, and, and uh, I mean, it happens. You don't think much about it, but a full year and a half later, I'm working at a photo lab, and a lot of times pictures would come through from places I'd been, and I'd kind of tell the other folks, oh, I've been here, you know, that I worked with. And as it turns out, this one, I'm printing this roll of pictures, and the machine jammed up the prints. So I had to take these wrinkled prints, check the corrections in the back, reprint them, and found three consecutive pictures taken of me halfway around the world a full year earlier without my knowledge, and it was that guy splashing me. And my jaw just dropped. Like, I turned flush red. Like, the, the odds of that are amazing. I'm thinking, first of all, the amount of labs in the world or the amount of labs in Vancouver, and even that lab at that time, there was seven people I worked with. If it went through anybody else's hands, never would have seen it. And if the printer hadn't jammed up the prints, I never would have noticed. And I actually, I printed some of those, and I've got one framed on my wall here, of this guy throwing water on me. And then the guy who took the picture was across the street, like three, four car lengths away, so I never even knew the photo was taken. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> How did that story get out? Who told you the story back, you were saying? A few well, no, no, I, I'm the one who, who, it happened to me, so I got to see this happen. Like, I got to see this picture of me a full year later. Like, so it, it happened to me, it's, it's my story. I've told it to others, and I've heard other people telling it to other people type thing. But um, what's equally kind of interesting is the guy who took the picture, I left a note on his, on his bag of photos saying, hey, I'm in your photos, like, come find me. And he actually did come up afterwards and said hi, and he was going to be flying back to Korea the next day. Day, but he said, yeah, I'll try to pop back and see if I can you know, take you out for a beer and would have a laugh. And unfortunately, I, I, he wasn't able to come back and I lost track of him. But I still have that picture proving it. William R. Jans from WilliamRJPhoto.com. Another little photo sort of incident that happened was your encounters with the president of China and the president of the Dalai Lama or Mr. President Dalai well, Lama. Yeah, I mean, it's two separate things. Um, I was lucky enough to be one of the three official photographers for the Dalai Lama when he was here, and that was very cool, and I got a nice But I guess what I meant regarding that is you got a photo of you with the president of China that you used to your advantage, didn't you? Um, well, uh, okay, well, yeah. In short, I, I one of my corporate clients I do photography for does a lot of stuff with, with China, and I was hired a few times to photograph these events, and there was it wasn't the president of it was like number three and number seven in power at that time, real high role. I mean, well, big guys and huge security and stuff, and um, everybody wanted pictures with this number three guy. And I guess just doing my job, I must have been smiling like 
I don't know, a lot, I guess. And, and it just it's the nature of how I work, I try to keep friendly. And <clears throat> at one point he goes, you know, hey, you, you know, the guy taking the pictures, come and, come and be in a picture. So I went, okay. And so I had this picture taken of me and him, and I brought it and stuck it in my passport when I was heading into China, thinking if I ever had any problems going through borders or anything, I'd, I'd kind of pull this out, you know, hey, my friend here or whatever, and thinking this might help. But as it turns out, when I first went through from Laos into China, I had that image and showed it and realized this is a bad plan because it took me over 45 minutes to get out of there after that point and everybody was like oh my god who do we call how important is this guy because he's with number three and it just opened up a can of worms and my friend who lived there too said yeah you know it it, it seems like it'd be great but they get all worried about what protocol they should be observing and how important it it goes to a different extreme so i kind of just kept it to kept it low-key after that but did you tell the Dalai Lama that you had a picture of number three of China? Because you had a no. photo with the Dalai Lama as well, both sides. No, then those are years apart. And, and one was just a professional job where I'm just doing my job, and that was the, with the Chinese delegates. And uh, for my client, and I just, yeah, I was doing that, and that happened. But no, the, the Dalai Lama event was something that was really dear to me, and it just it was really, really cool and powerful, and that was neat to to be um, that close for that many days. And uh, and I got I, I learned a few Tibetan phrases, and and I gave him a couple of posters um, that I've got to, but I, I actually got to make him laugh, which isn't that hard. And then his translator, who's based in Montreal, who's a really nice guy, I even, uh, there's one thing, which is, oi, karechigi yubei, which I, I teach the people that in the, in the Tibetan show. And it literally means, hey, what's up? And it's like the coolest thing Tibetan kids can say to each other. And I was thinking, you know, if only this has got a pretty good sense of humor, I probably could have got away with that, but instead I said it to the translator, and he just howled. Oi, karechigi yubei. Are you going to use that Dalai Lama photo on your, any of your trips? Um, well, interestingly, the only place it would really be powerful, I, I mean, I guess a lot of people know who he is around the planet, so, yeah, I, I mean, I guess it it's behooves me to have it with me. But going into China, it would be really neat to have that if I get to go back to Tibet, but it's a banned image. Like, you cannot have an image of, of the Dalai Lama. It's it's a... Uh, it's yeah, it's forbidden. So to have the picture of me with him could actually risk me not getting into the country or getting kicked out, and that's not an exaggeration at all. But you have the picture of you with the number three of China. So wouldn't that counter that? Um, well, I'm sure he's not in power anymore, and then, no, it would probably open up a huge can of worms. Like, well, how does this guy, meaning me, know both these extreme polar opposites? And um, and that's what makes your show so great, WilliamRJans.com. <laughs> no, WRJphoto.com, but uh, where, I am William R. Jans, yes. Where did you get that interesting picture of you doing an unexploded bomb tour? Where was that? There was an unexploded bomb tour that you went on? Where was that? That was. How did you know about that? The unexploded bomb <laughs> tour. Uh, yeah, that's in, um, in Laos. Uh, then in that time, Laos, or Laos as some people call it, is, is right beside Vietnam. And at that area I got to go through, there was so much, it's called UXO, Unexploded Ordnance. Uh, and more people have been injured since the Vietnam War than during because of there's so much stuff that's still lying around. And, and during that time, it's unbelievable. Laos is the most bombed country in the history of warfare which is an amazing statement to be able to make. And that's because the U.S. was dropping on, dropping, uh, was it, um, oh, I forget how many tons, nine tons per day, I think, for a full year. I, I don't have the stats in front of me, 
but I do my research. It's accurate in the show. That's on the fly right now. But it ends up being it's one ton of bombs dropped for every man, woman, and child. Uh, and that's a pretty amazing statistic. So the amount of the stuff that's kicking around, people make fences out of the old shrapnel of bombs. And then uh, farmers, of course, and kids got to watch it. You see a lot of people who are unfortunately missing limbs and with crutches and stuff in some of these areas. Zian Kwan is the one area that I was in, Pont Savan. But that sounds kind of interesting or scary. Unexploded yeah. bomb tour. Yeah, and it's it's definitely one place where you really stay on the path. And when what's kind of goofy, and, and this is in the Trekking in Tibet show too, is that in that area, um, when I was going through that part of Laos, uh, I remember walking along at one point, looking down, and, and some turkey had like discarded this old flashlight and left it in the middle of the path. And I was thinking, like, how obnoxious. And it just had that glimmer of a thought of I should kick it out of the way. I didn't. And then later mentioned to the girls, uh, or no, the later the girls said, hey, did you see the unexploded bomb in the middle of the path? It's like, oh, God, I thought it was a flashlight. Luckily, I didn't kick it. William Jans, have you met any punks on any of your adventures? Have you seen any Mohawks? Yeah, yeah. I've met some very interesting punks. Matter of fact, it's funny you say that. I met this guy, and, oh, God, he was just so interesting. He was from both Seattle and San Francisco. He... Um, knew Kurt Cobain. He he was the whole. He was really into the whole grunge thing. The some of the lyrics uh, in in the one song about uh, I can't remember which track it is, but Kurt had written about the the king of porn. He said he knew that guy because they they hung out in L.A. together, and he dated his daughter, and he had wild stories, and he was like pierced like crazy, and had all these these. Where did you meet him? That was in Laos, actually, or in Laos. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, he had really wild stories, and I, I still remember my very first trip. Well, actually, no, the first big one, I guess, overseas that that really uh, kind of changed me a lot. And that was in India. And I remember being in this restaurant. A lot of times, you walk into an Indian restaurant, and they see foreigners coming in, and they think, "Oh, you know, they will stop playing this Indian music. We'll play music they like." And they put like Iron Maiden on or something because they think it's popular to everybody. And uh, I remember being in this restaurant. And suddenly, I didn't notice the music was changing, but I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, that's Killing Joke. Oh, my God, that's, uh, you know, Black Flag, or at least really obscure stuff I would never expect to hear in India. Susie and the Banshees, all sorts of stuff that just didn't really fit. And uh, I, I finally was starting to tell more people at the table, can you believe this music? Like, where is this guy getting this from? And it was this guy from Belgium who was two seats over. He said, oh, yeah, I gave him a cassette when you weren't looking. And, and he had all this great that he was playing and then so yeah he was another interesting punk from Belgium and you slip in some music in your presentations too like Tuxedo Moon well done and Einstein die Neubauten which I have a tough time saying but I really like them and just winding up here we're going to end this little interview here with William R. Jans WRJphoto.com with some Tuxedo Moon and Incubus Blue Suit do you know that tune? I don't know it by name but hopefully I'll know to hear it however <laughs> I can't let you go without asking you about your photography adventures in the musical realm, which, of course, some people might be familiar with some of your pics from Discorder magazine. <laughs> Recently, though, you had a run-in with the police again, the police's son. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of funny. That, well, years ago in the 80s, actually, I was lucky enough to – I photographed a lot of concerts, and I had the good fortune of not just kind of meeting the police but hanging out with them a little bit. And they were really nice and really fun. And I was daft enough to figure, hey, 20 years later, when they came back to starting the tour here, it'd kind of be fun to go up again and say, hey, you know, catch up again or whatever. Because I got to um, spend time with them here in Vancouver, and then uh, in Tacoma I went down as well for that. And anyway, I was hitting total stonewall trying to go through all the proper channels to, to get a pass and stuff. And it, it wasn't looking good. And 
a separate thing is I've been running for years, and I was going out uh, in Stanley Park into this little running race, and uh, it was really a small event. It was a charitable thing for, like, Kidney Foundation, I think. And get to the start line, and there's this small smattering of people. Most are going to be walking. There's only about eight of us that are going to be running, and me and this one other guy kind of look at each other and realize, yeah, we're both probably actually going to run the whole thing. So I introduced myself, start chatting. We ran nine of the 10K together, and I didn't find out until – well, I mean, I found a few things – because I said, you know, what are you doing in town? He says, oh, I'm in a band. Oh, really? Where are you from? California. Oh, wow. What do you play? Bass. Oh, that's cool. And, um, you know, where are you playing? He goes, I don't know the name of the place. And I said, oh, okay. And I said, where are you staying? He said, the Wall Center. And I went, wow, business must be good. Then I found it later. Yeah, it was uh, Joe Sumner, Sting's kid. It looks just like him. But And I'm usually really good at spotting that, but uh, had no clue and spent this whole time chatting with this guy. And he, he gave answers to my questions. And I didn't have loaded questions because I didn't know who I was talking to. But he, he kind of surreptitiously kept enough info out probably that I, he would hey I'm, I'm Sting's kid <laughs> oh cool how about Skinny Puppy? Did you ever photograph them? No, I didn't, actually. The Cure. Yep. The, the shot that I loved was in the cover of Discorder magazine, William Jans. What do you remember about that shot? Can you describe that? That was at A&B Sound? Uh, I think it was actually Odyssey Imports. Um, and uh, that was back when, um, what's his name, from Network Records, I think, managed the store, I believe. Um... Uh, well, at any rate, yeah, they brought them in for this little autograph session, and they were really nice. And I, I think I asked, because uh, Lawrence Tolhurst was there and, and Robert Smith, and I think I asked Robert something uh, like, uh, I guess a little bolder. And he, basically, he was really kind of, he pinched both his cheeks, kind of pulling them up into a smile, and that's a really fun photo. And I got some backstage pictures of them, too, that they were really cool. And I, that was the whole thing I found with the whole kind of alternative scene back then. Everybody was really damn friendly and fun, and, and like partying with the Clash was such a hoot. They were such nice people, and you know, Shriek back were nice as well. And Nina Hagen was pleasant. And you tried to help out Lux of the Cramps too, didn't you? I tried. Uh, yeah, they were. I remember he was backstage signing somebody's uh, skateboard, and uh, really nice too. And I remember suggesting you guys because they they said they were on, in a bus and where they were traveling was going to be heading eastward, and they're saying you should totally try to go to Flintstone Village. And can I come and take pictures? Because I thought. That cramps at Flintstone Village, which is, I guess, now called Dino Town or something, that would have been the best. And I don't think they actually stopped there, but uh, they listened, and I told them where it was and stuff. And What about you two? Um, I can remember they, Bono spent more time outside of the uh, concert after it finished talking to a small group of, of young folk. who, And it was so cool because... These kids were, oh, I mean, they were avid concert goers, but they weren't dips and going, hey, are you a singer? Oh, I'm a singer. You know, they were asking stuff about religion and politics, and Bono was right into it, and he actually had to get pulled away by the manager. We, he was out there with a, like a small group of us for, I'd say, 45 minutes, and, and sitting on the fence. He loves to talk, too, but it was just so cool that this group had really good questions, as opposed to... I um, mean, this is the other extreme, but I remember the talking heads were, were fun to kind of be backstage with, and uh, there were, at one point, I always would bring albums to get signed, and I'd, I'd head to my car, uh, which was in the back parking lot, get my albums, come back in with them, because when I was photographing the gig, I don't who wants to carry albums, right? Anyway, I was coming back in, and I saw these three kids who were waiting by the door, for, hoping for a glimmer of the talking heads, and uh, I was surprised, because when I went back in, you know, David Burns there, and, and Chris, uh, Tina Weymouth, and all these people, and, and it's really pleasant and low-key, there wasn't huge crowds or anything, and I, I just said to kind of on the fly to, to David Byrne. I said, I don't know if you might be interested, but there's three kids out by the back door who I think would get a huge kick out of meeting you, and they seem really quite nice and, and pretty mellow. 
and he just kind of nodded and said, okay, yeah, and I didn't really think much about it. But he walked all the way to the backstage door, got them and brought them in. And, and that was very cool. And then, unfortunately, these kids proceeded to be like the, the you know, running up and trying to in, uh, interrupt the drummer or Chris Franz when he was talking to somebody else, going, are you a drummer? Are you a drummer? I'm a drummer. I'm a drummer, you know? And, and so it went a little sideways, but... Uh, Anyway, just two two separate sort of extremes between a really uh, informed audience and a couple who were maybe less, more excitable, which is good, but the questions were less interesting. And some of these photos actually are up on wrjphoto.com for people to look at, William Jans. Lastly here, though, William Jans, what were you taking photos for? What were you taking photos for? Was it the Scorter? Yeah, sometimes. Um, I had the good fortune of shooting some stuff for in excess, actually, for spin, but that was one of those days that I, I still feel bad about where FedEx got it there late and it never ran, and, uh, and I never got to do something for them again. Was that the U2 stuff? Where did the U2 no, stuff run? Um, oh, no, actually, interestingly, U2, I didn't work out. I didn't get a proper pass. So I was in the gig and without a camera, because, uh, I mean, as I started doing it more, if I couldn't go through the proper channels and get credentials, I, I couldn't risk doing it underhandedly and getting in trouble. So I just uh, saw the gig. And, and then afterwards, out back is where, uh, you know, bumped into them like anybody else could have, I guess. How about the Go-Go's? <laughs> Uh, they like drugs, didn't they? Yeah, they had a little little Ziploc baggie of pot in their limo, and they were just so young and precocious and fun. And it was like they seemed really, really happy. It was really cool to see. Uh, like they weren't jaded, I guess is what you need to say. It's still wide-eyed and like, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. How about the Thompson Twins and Roxy Music? Uh, Thompson Twins... Uh, I met them first, actually, at CITR. Uh, went out there to take some pictures. I think it was uh, Mike Johal or something might have been doing an interview or something. And then later uh, saw them here. And actually, I remember giving Joe Leeway and a couple other people in the band, uh, like more background musicians, a ride to some club. And uh, I guess I was a little excited because I remember Joe at one point kind of said, hey, you know, you, you can turn your wiper blades off. <laughs> like it wasn't even raining. <laughs> and so you get a little excited. That was fun. Um, what was the other one you asked about? Oh, the, oh, Roxy Music. Um, yeah, that was really daft. I was uh, foolhardy enough that I, I invited them out for, you know, like, uh, you know, for dinner. <laughs> a couple of them, and I mean, it didn't happen, but it was fun. Well, thank you so much for phoning into the Nerdwater Human Serviette radio show here today, William R. Jans from WRJPhoto.com. Coming up right now, some Tuxedo Moon. When did you get into Tuxedo Moon? Was that through CITR? Oh, yeah, and I guess all the music in and around it. I, I think if you're listening to good stuff, you start finding more about good stuff. And uh, it's all there. It's just a matter of looking. So, yeah. Anything else you want to add to the people out there? Why should um, people care about William R. Jans' presentations, audiovisual presentations? Will you do one about rock and roll? You've got all these rock and roll photos now. Um, I, I, to do it upright, I would need all the video to really tie it in. I like that they run tight and like a movie. But as far as why should people care, um, I, I hope they might just find them entertaining. I, the nicest thing is, a big kick for me, is people who were brought under duress, like maybe felt their arm was twisted by a friend or, or whatever, those are the ones who usually end up being most passionate because they totally didn't know what to expect and they get pretty jazzed. So I hope you know, if people check out the website, just click on that button on the one side and uh, ask for updates and I'll tell them next time I'm doing dates and hopefully they'll come and uh, maybe see what the fuss is about. I don't know. Well, thanks so much, William Jans, for phoning into the Nardwarty Human Serviette Radio Show. Keep on rocking in the free world and doot-doot-a-loot-doo. And this is where I get to do my... That's my patented answer to your question.
Music plays in empty halls Underneath 